Greetings and welcome. You're listening to the Genesis Podcast, the official podcast of the Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. It is our goal to inspire one another to change the world by effectively living in the way of Jesus. Check out our website, thegenesisstory.com. There, you can learn more about us, where and when we meet, ways to invest and support, but most importantly, how to get connected. Thank you for spending time with us today. Good morning. Sorry, we're a couple minutes late. My grandkids are here. I had to say hello. But glad you guys are here this morning in person. Thank you guys again for joining us online. Those who will be listening later, appreciate you. Appreciate your continued support. We are so, so grateful. I don't want to ever forget to tell you that. Um, As we get started today, I'm going to be concluding the series on hell. At least I think I'm concluding it. Uh, But before we even go further, let's pause. Let's pray. You know, as Randy comes up to lead us in music, it's, again, an opportunity for us to kind of reset ourselves mentally to be able to allow our focus to change so that we can think about things that might pertain to Christ, to God, and affect our lives. And so I want to encourage us here and those watching, just allow this time of music not to be just a time where some songs are sung, but a time where we are meditatively participating in what is happening here together. So let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful once again for opportunities like this where we can press pause and focus on you, the importance that you play in our lives, our desire to learn more, to grow, to lean into the mystery of who you are. And we're grateful for this opportunity. May we be open, may we be receptive, and may our time together have a lasting effect on us far beyond what happens just in this time here. We are thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I have so enjoyed our conversations after my talk, and I look forward to today as well. Um, This topic has been very, um, I don't know, there's a lot of emotion behind it because of how it has affected the way we live and the way we interact with so many people. And it's a little bit of trauma, I think, sometimes going back to some of the things that I've held on to and I have presented Um, and having to reconcile where I'm at now and some of the things that I've taught, some of the things that I've said, it's one of those things where it's, there's a lot involved in it. And so as we go through this week as well, I imagine that'll resurface in some ways again. Uh, I want to do a quick review from the last few weeks, just so we can kind of get caught up in what's going on. And the very first week, we talked about how the word that is translated hell in our Bibles 
varies a lot in the different translations, that there's really four words that are used that can be translated as hell. In the Old Testament, there's the word sheol, and literally it means the grave. In the New Testament, that word is Hades, and it means essentially the same thing. It is that world of the departed. Then there is the word Gehenna, which is the Valley of Gehenna, which was familiar in the Old Testament as a place where idolatry and sacrifice to you know, the gods was made, and it became a trash heap where there was always fire burning where the lepers lived and the outs, you know, those who were uh, criminals were outcast there. And then there's the word Tartaru, which is used only once in Second Peter. And how the translators determine to translate those words as we know of hell just depends on their preference. We saw that in the New King James Version, the word is translated hell 54 times. In the NIV, it's only translated 14 times as hell. In the Young's literal translation, it's not translated hell at all. So depending on what translation you have will depend on how you're reading just that word. And we saw that the first person to write about where we have documentation about hell being this eternal place of torment was Tertullian around 200 CE. And at the same time, out of the six theological schools of that time, Tertullian's was the only one, which is actually a Roman Latin school that taught this, that four of the other five taught that the death and resurrection of Christ, through the death and resurrection of Christ, all people would be saved through restorative judgment and reconciliation in a plan for the ages. And it was known as universal salvation or universal reconciliation. So what I'm presenting here today isn't new, right? This isn't, oh, this is progressive and, you know, this is something that's new age or something. No, this is something that has been a part of our history as Christians since the early centuries. It's just the Latin Roman one was the one that caught traction and became a part of the Western conversation and dominated that conversation. And so that's why most of us are familiar with that because we've grown up in that frame of thought. And so most of the time when we see these things, it's because of these traditions. The, The week after that, we talked about the words that are used for fire and eternal, how the word for eternal or forever is literally the word ages. And so it could be upon ages, but an age has a set period of time, but there can be ages upon ages, which are set time and set time. And the importance of that is because it's not done in forever. It's like there's an age, and then there's an age after that, and then there's an age after that, that there is an end to those ages. And we also looked at the word fire as it's used throughout scripture. And most of the time when it's used in the form of judgment, it's used in the idea of refining. And so having the idea of a refining fire instead of burning and torment is another way of seeing and looking at these things. And we talked about some of the figurative language as we looked at a passage in Revelation, how it's important to see things literarily and not just literally. 
and apocalyptic language like what we have in Revelation has all these kinds of uh, just imaginative examples, and it's figurative. And we understand that when there's a harlot who's on a beast who has, you know, seven heads and crowns, we know that, well, that probably isn't what the author is trying to tell us about is there was actually this. It's probably referring to Rome and the seven hills that are around Rome. And while we have no problem thinking of that figuratively, for some reason, the lake of fire becomes literal. When very likely it could be something that is referring to more than just hell and eternity and the lake of fire. We also saw in the book of Revelation how there is this recognition of the dogs and murderers and these people who are evil. And dogs were most likely the Gentile world at that time. That's just how they called them. But in the very next verses, there is the spirit, the bride and the spirit say, come. Who's he saying come to? To the dogs, the murderers, and all these people. There's an invitation for these people to come. And we saw in chapter 22 that the gates of the city, of this kingdom, never close. Gates are meant to keep people out and keep people from leaving. But these gates are open. And so there's a lot going on figuratively where we can imagine other scenarios than just this is how it is of all eternal torment for anyone who doesn't fit in the right category. Last week, we saw that this figurative language was used by Jesus in a well-known parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We talked about how Lazarus's name in the Hebrew is Eleazar, and a conversation that has Abraham in it, which the story does, and Eleazar would have an immediate response to the Jewish people at that time because Eleazar was Abraham's CFO. He was his chief financial officer. He was the one who managed all of Abraham's things. And there's the passage where Abraham goes to God and he says, what am I gonna do? I have no heir. Everything is going to go to Eleazar from Damascus. Damascus being a reference to where he's from, which is saying that he is a Gentile. And so Jesus is telling a story about Father Abraham, a rich man who in all likelihoods represented Judah or the tribe of Judah as they call him, Father Abraham, reach out to me. And Abraham says, my son, to him. And so there is this connection that this is probably the lineage of Abraham. And then there's this poor man, Lazarus, who sat at the gates of the rich man, just wanting the crumbs from his table, but got nothing. And now he is with Abraham by his side. Some translations say by his bosom. And between them is a giant gulf, just like the gulf that is there in their actual landmarks, right? We talked about that the greatest chasm, visible chasm on earth that separated the land of the Gentiles and the promised land is there. And so you can imagine them saying, oh, there's a great chasm. Oh, then there's Abraham. And then there's this Lazarus who was Eleazar or like Eleazar, the Gentile. And there's the separation between the promised land and the land of the Gentiles. What's Lazarus doing on this side 
in the promised land. And so it seems more likely that Jesus is talking figuratively about the Pharisees, them having this idea that their ethnicity gives them privilege with God over the Gentiles. And Jesus saying that these people who are without are actually the ones who will become within. I think it's not only interesting where we go theologically when we think of heaven and hell, but where we don't go. Because in the story of Abraham and Lazarus, you don't hear many messages about rich and poor. And that really is at the heart of the topic. The rich man had everything, Lazarus was poor. And there's something missing, right, in Jesus' story. There is no talking about accepting Jesus. There's no talk about, you know, being baptized. How does Lazarus get there? He's just poor. What does he do to get to Abraham's side? He doesn't do anything according to the parable. He's just there. And we have another story that I want to talk about today because this is another one that has been on my mind when I think of the idea of hell and maybe it comes to your mind as well. And it's in Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. Jesus is speaking and he says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
And again, that word eternal could be translated into the age and ages. Again, a few things missing in this story. Jesus says nothing about accepting him as the personal Lord and Savior. He says nothing about repenting of sins. There is no presentation of making a decision to follow him. At this point, the only thing that seems to be whether you get in or out is how you treat other people. All right, so in these two stories, how you get to, if we want to call it heaven, and how you keep from going to hell is how you treat others. There isn't this presentation of making a personal commitment to Jesus, saying a sinner's prayer. There's nothing of that in these stories. And yet that's where we go so many times or where I've gone too many times, the whole idea of this judgment, well, because we are the ones who are gonna you know, present God's good news to the people who are poor. But it says nothing about presenting good news. It's feeding them, it's clothing them, it's doing the natural things with the people who are actually in need. Once again, though, we have to look at reading this story literarily and not just literally. One of the things that Jesus did so often, whether it was talking in parables or some of his examples, is he used hyperbole. And the idea of hyperbole, we have a slide here, the meaning is exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. That's what hyperbole means. And so there are some examples of hyperbole, and I'll list off a few here. In Matthew chapter six, this is the next slide, Gil, right? You see, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How does your left hand not know what your right hand is doing, right? It doesn't make sense, but it's hyperbole. Mark 10, 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus tells us to love one another, but then he tells us we have to hate our wife and our children. And then in Matthew, and if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. And the word is Gehenna there. Again, hyperbole, exaggerated, not meant to be taken literally. These are just some examples and there's a bunch of them. And we see that happening throughout Jesus's words and teaching. And when we reduce Jesus's words about sheep and goats and heaven and hell, I think we miss the whole point of what he's trying to say. The point of this story is not what happens after we die. It's about what happens when we're living. It's about how we live and participate in God's kingdom now. That's the point. And this is supported as we see how the early followers of Christ lived their life, what they were known for, how they conducted themselves with others around them. We get an example of this in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 44. 
says, now all believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Of course, who wouldn't want to be a part of something like this, especially if you're living in poverty, which the majority of them were. Again, we, we have to remember what is happening at this time and how Jesus is addressing very clear needs. And when we start pulling ourselves away from that, we lose the understanding of what is actually happening and how important this was to their people and why the stories meant so much. I've shared before, I read a book, you know, Misunderstanding Scripture from Western Eyes, how the author was a missionary, and I forget where it was that he was at. It was in the... I'll get it wrong, so I'm not even going to mention. But he was at a country, and he went through the story of the prodigal son, and he asked them, what's the most important thing in that story? And the majority of students where he was at said that there was a famine. Where I don't know how many times I read that story, that wasn't the most important thing to me. No, it was all about the son and the rejoining for the father. But for them who lived in poverty, who didn't have a lot, famine was a big deal. That changes everything. Poverty, living at this time, changes everything. And when we remove ourselves from the circumstance, we come up with all kinds of misconceptions. I remember talking to someone and they were talking about how, you know, it says in the Bible that women are supposed to be homemakers and work at home. It's like, most of the women were slaves, what does that look like? Work at home, but you're also a slave working for someone else, right? And, and so pull it out of that context, and all of a sudden you start presenting a whole belief system that gets put on people that wasn't even part of the conversation at the time. And so what we see here is Jesus helping us to understand what the kingdom looks like by how we interact with one another. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is our opportunity to participate in kingdom living. This isn't about getting people to go to heaven or keeping people from going to hell as much as it is about participating with God here and now, with the needs of the people around us. And there is a character to the kingdom, how it behaves, how it looks. And Jesus used this exaggerated language to help us understand it. I know people ask, well, what happens when we take, and we've had this discussion here, what happens when we take hell away as a motivating factor to do good or to tell others about Jesus? Because so many of us grew up thinking, if you don't tell people about Jesus, they're going to hell, and so it's now on us to make sure. How, how will they know unless someone is sent? And that's our job. 
and what it's such a, a strange way to interpret the teachings of Jesus. I mean, at least now looking back at it, it just seems, you know, okay, how, how can we motivate people to go to heaven and do good unless we let them know they're going to hell? Well, in Romans chapter two, Paul tells us that, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So it's not hell that gets you out. The fear of going there, it is the goodness that draws you in. Totally different motivation. I I see this in dog training, once again, compare us all to dogs. I can make a dog obey me and be really harsh, but it's not sustainable. If the dog is always living in fear, at some point it's going to snap. But if we develop the relationship that helps the dog to understand there is a better way to live, that it can be free of fear from skateboards or trash trucks or other dogs, then the dog can learn to adapt to the different way of life and actually do better. I think that's what is being done in the gospel. And the idea, this pressure of hell or else is actually counterintuitive to the character of the kingdom. Are we more interested in what happens after we die than we are in seeing the world changed by the power of Christ lived out in our lives? And I'm not saying we are, and I'm not saying that all people are, but when this becomes the big focus, that becomes kind of a bottom line. How can it not be? If we're talking about eternity in hell where they're gonna be tormented forever and ever, how could that not dominate your thought process when you're talking to someone you love. I got to save you from this. When in the illustrations of Jesus, what I really need to do is save you from the poverty you're in and show you kindness and goodness and those things. And by doing that, I am representing God. Whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. Is our view of salvation only otherworldly and not this worldly? I don't think afterlife should be the focus of our salvation, our evangelism, or our earthly existence. I, I think if afterlife dominates this life, we are misrepresenting what Jesus taught. If you were to die today, right, I've, I heard this, you know, this was how I was told to evangelize people. And even in those little tracks that you would get, if you were to die today and you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say to him? Right? Because that's a real scenario. That's going to happen, right? That's just how it works, right? Again, First of all, according to the story of the sheep and goats and the rich man of Lazarus, I should say, well, I helped the poor people. Okay, yeah, that's the right answer, according to those stories. But I don't think that's the point either. Secondly, this way of thinking is so otherworldly that it is detached from most of what Jesus taught. 
And so an example of what Jesus taught about, well, how do you, you know, get into my kingdom? What do you do to get there? Remember in Zacchaeus, in, in Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. I love this story because Zacchaeus says, stood there and said to the Lord, this is after he had dinner with Jesus at his house. Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and save that what was lost. When did salvation come to that household? That day, what did Zacchaeus do to bring that salvation? Well, he said the sinner's prayer. No, doesn't say anything about that. He said he's gonna give what he has in surplus to those who are in need. And if he's wronged anyone, he's gonna give four times as much. And Jesus said, okay, kingdom's right here now. Because what you do to the least of these, you do to me. We don't see how connected to one another we are. And this is the gospel message. This is what we're proclaiming. Not when you die, you go here or go there. That's not what's driving this conversation. So why do we follow Jesus? Why why is he necessary? If there's no heaven as we've maybe thought of it, or there's no hell the way maybe we've been taught about it, why do we need Jesus? Why do good? Why try to witness? We do this so that we and the world can be changed and transformed by the power of God so that we can stop the violence so that we can show love even to our enemies so that God's will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we do these things because this is the character and heart of God and his kingdom. And by doing this, it becomes seen. No one has seen God at any time, John tells us, but when we love one another, God is made tangible, manifest, so that people can see, just like they did in Acts when they were doing and taking care of one another, all things in common, and everyone said, man, this is great. Now, they had their problems, we're going to have our problems too. It doesn't go smooth. Sorry, I know we're waiting for that to happen, but it just doesn't work that way. But it works towards what is good. And so what is salvation and why did Jesus have to die on a cross if it isn't to save us from hell? There are libraries written about that, and I'm not going to be able to answer it in a few minutes. But a couple of thoughts. If it is indeed kindness, God's goodness that leads us to repentance, then when we act like the sheep or Zacchaeus, 
we are bringing that salvation to those around us. When we care about others and not just about ourselves, we find ourselves with Lazarus instead of the rich man. And there's a passage in 1 Peter that I find really beautiful in chapter two, 1 Peter chapter two, verse 21, it says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's how we follow him, Right? We're supposed to follow not only in his suffering, but in not deceiving and not harming others. That's how we follow in his steps. In verse 23, and when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is an overwhelming lack of ego in Jesus, who when he is insulted, does not insult back when accusations are hurled at him, he doesn't retaliate, but entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. It's as if he knows, I know this is rigged and I know it's going to work out, so I'm not gonna worry about all the noise. I'm gonna line up with what is true and who God is. And that is our example. I believe that this allows us to see things differently, to live differently, to interact with those around us differently, like Jesus did. And I am probably not near as aware as I should be of how blind I am to the life that I live and how alienated I am from the world around me that does not enjoy the comforts and luxuries that I have. But I get glimpses of it, right? When we go to Haiti, sometimes when we've gone to Mexico, there are things that happen and you see and you say, wow, people are living like this. And it propels us to do something. To recognize that if I'm going to act like Christ, it's not about holding myself up and maintaining what I have as it is about being able to enjoy all that I have with those who might be around me in what ways that I can. I think this is salvation, not from hell, but to the heart of God. 
And again, the whole reason of this conversation we've had for these few weeks is because there are many people, like I started off mentioning that woman who came to my office and said, I cannot believe in Jesus if it means that my husband, who was not a Christian, is going to be eternally in hell, having just died of cancer. I cannot believe that. He was a good person. And if I hold on to this faith, I'm also holding on to that idea, and I cannot live with that. And I don't think you have to. I don't think we are forced to through Scripture. I think there is enough to think about here that gives us cause to think differently and to wonder outside of maybe the traditions we have without feeling, well, I'm just some heretic. I feel that anyway, but I don't think I am destroying what the scripture is saying. I think I'm holding true to what Jesus is saying and taking scriptures literarily and not just literally in concerns to heaven, hell, salvation. But that's what I think. Let's talk about it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would find freedom to think differently, even as many of your followers have in decades past and centuries past, that there is room for a different conversation, that there is the ability to talk about these things without just being shut down and condemned. Lord, there's the ability to reconcile who we believe you to be with our understanding of judgment and eternity and how you work in the hearts and lives of people, that there is room for us to breathe. And I pray we would. I pray that this would motivate us to to more conversation, not less, that this would help us to understand that we have good news that we can proclaim. And it's good news for everybody. It's good news for the world. It's good news for Eleazar, the Gentile. It's good news for Zacchaeus, the the thief. It is good news for those who don't see themselves as belonging, but you do. And I pray we would engage this wholeheartedly, that we would allow it to convict and shape us and move us forward in the character and love of Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. May you realize that you are so, so loved. And wherever you are, may that goodness lead you to repentance, to draw closer to the heart of Christ. God bless you guys. Have a great week. And see you soon. You've been listening to the official podcast of Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. If you've been encouraged, found hope, been challenged by what you've heard, 
we'd like to ask you to help spread the word by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. You can also help support our podcast by visiting us at thegenesisstory.com. It has been our pleasure to have you join us today, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.